On this episode of Come Pray With Me, I interview Michael Sabet and Anthony Naimi from one of my favorite podcasts, A Baha'i Conversation. They will be sharing more about what Baha'is believe and how they became friends and started a podcast together. Baha'i is a monotheistic faith founded by Baha'u'llah, although its origins can be traced back to the writings of Ali Muhammad, known as the Bab, meaning the gate. It is known for its emphasis on the oneness in all religions. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show today. It's a pleasure to have you both. Yeah, Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for reaching out. So, yeah, we were so excited and, yeah, so happy to talk. Well, thank you. I've been listening to your podcast for a while, and I definitely consider myself a fan, so I was ecstatic when y'all both responded. <laughs> so Very my cool. first question is, how long have you both been practicing as Baha'is, and what ways has that impacted your life? Yeah, um, so I, I guess there's almost two ways um, I could answer the question of how long I've been practicing as a Baha'i. Um, on the one hand, so my parents are both Baha'is, so I was kind of raised in in the Baha'i faith. So since I was a child, I learned about um, you know learned about about the religion and and practiced it in in the way that children do, you know, uh, saying prayers and uh, going to community events and things like that. Uh, then from another perspective, so one of the fundamental teachings in the Baha'i faith is the idea of independent investigation of the truth. And a facet of this is that um, once you're old enough to think independently about reality uh, and certainly about uh, religion, um, then you decide whether whether indeed you are uh, Baha'i. So that happens for Baha'i, for Baha'i children at the age of 15. Uh, so I guess from that perspective, I could say that as a from the point of view of a conscious decision, I suppose, I've been practicing as a Baha'i since uh, since about that age. For me, Sarah, um, my father is uh, from a Baha'i family, but I would say I, I wasn't raised as a Baha'i. Um, uh, so I grew up, uh, I knew about it. I had known the name Baha'u'llah, and, um, but I, I very much rejected the Baha'i faith along with all religion. I remember growing up believing that uh, just like a good secular materialist, right? I grew up believing that all people who had religious beliefs were necessarily stupid. I just had this naive belief because I didn't know anybody who was really religious and it just wasn't part of my worldview. And so with great, um, but you know, I had some, I had a complicated teenage life and I had lots of questions and I had lots of um I just wasn't satisfied with life I didn't understand what the whole premise of being alive was and um I met a Baha'i when I was around 20 who um had a great impact on me um so I became a Baha'i because I was really drawn inwardly to the spiritual message but it was very conflict conflicted intellectually right um so I became a Baha'i when I was around 20 and um, I just overcome obstacle, uh, you know, can, I just had to overcome a lot of obstacles in order to really um, be an authentic Baha'i. And I mean, the Baha'i faith asks a lot of you in terms of inward transformation and it, it requires a lot of trust and it requires a lot of accepting guidance and, um, so the process of being a Baha'i has been very impactful and formative in my life. Um, and I think the main thing it has already offered me is a sense of coherence with my life. So it's kind of given me, um, you know, it's given me a path and a direction along which to make efforts in my life. It's given me um, principles through which I'm able to judge right and wrong and discriminate kind of the errors of certain choices, which previously were just obvious to me. It's given me a real framework to help me understand some of the mysterious and like enigmatic 
aspects of life. Like, you know, life is sometimes so confusing if you, um, and so it's given me a real framework to help me think about um, those like more mysterious kind of elements of life. Um, it's, it's given me fellowship and a community, which I didn't realize I kind of needed, right? I was very much kind of more individualistic in my thinking and I thought I was gonna do it all. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's given me lots of things. It's had a huge, huge impact uh, on my life, I would say. I have to agree. I was pretty much the same when I was younger, you know, kind of like the whole, I'm too smart for, religion and very hyper individualistic which I feel our society kind of encourages a lot and it's good to be able to take care of yourself but at the same time we need each other and it's like um, the metaphor of the alphabet because none of the letters stand alone they're all connected to each other by different lines so we all have to try and support each other to stay together and I feel like that was one of the first really important things that I learned when I converted to Baha'i. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. The, I think, I think people in, maybe this is our part of the world, but tend to be a bit conflicted in that on some level, we all, or ma many of us would say, yeah, it's, it's, it's important to have that broader view of uh, community and, and interconnection. Uh, but we really struggle to actually figure out what that looks like in practice. And mm -hmm. Sarah, you said like, in a way, society encourages the exact opposite. And I think that's really true. There's any number of uh, deliberate decisions people make, but also just kind of ones that they fall into based on the way things are that, that sort of break us apart uh, from each other and, and erode community. Um, and I do think an enduring role of religion is to not just provide the sort of structure within which we can have community, but also a very internally consistent story about why that actually matters and why it's important to fight for those connections, even when all the forces in society seem to be trying to, to pull us apart. And that's definitely something that, that um, I see and I feel in, because I, I mean, I may be similar to <laughs> both of you it's interesting real uh, my you know left alone my instinct is not to reach out to people it's it's just uh, as some people it is some people's personalities very much they need that connection i mean i think i need it too i just don't realize it viscerally that i need it so for me it's extremely uh important to have that conscious reminder in the form of the baha'i teachings that you know we, we do all need each other and we can't just live as, as islands. So what inspired you two to create this podcast? Um, you know, w Michael and I are very good friends. Um, we're very good friends. <laughs> and I think, uh, there's a couple of elements of our friendship that led to the, this kind of initiative become just being natural um, for us. So on the one hand, I think at the deepest level, Michael and I really connect over, we really, um, both of us feel very deeply the need to make efforts to prove worthy to God, I guess. Like we, we want to live our lives in such a way to win divine good pleasure and to win divine confirmations and we just want to be what what god has created us to be right i think both of us feel the need to do that we feel that kind of spiritual calling um and i think we see that in one another and we find real fellowship with one another to um to encourage and spur one another on um, I mean, we're different in some ways and we're kind of this, but we, we share a lot as well in terms of, and I think seeing that in one another, we're, we, it's a natural support for one another because both of us feel ourselves rather weak and pathetic <laughs> by ourselves. And like, you know, you feel well, like you need to make effort. Not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, not in my opinion. 
Thank you. That's very sweet. But you know, you kind of, regardless of what the external, we all kind of feel like that sometimes. We feel not enough or whatever. And I think, um, so I think the the fellowship that we find with one another, we kind of really understand each other's spiritual aspirations, and we spur each other on and we encourage one another. And that I think was what has really kept us close friends for so many years and kept us coming back to one another. And you know, uh, as like aside from that, like what that that mutual recognition that we have that we share that's the basis of our friendship we also for for many years we were uh, participants together in a weekly uh, bahai deepening group where we would kind of we would just discuss all aspects of bahai teachings and of course that was never a podcast right um, it was just a group of very close friends who met together weekly and discussed the implications of the bahai teachings for self and society and and so we shared, we got to know each other quite well, and we just became friends. We just, we understood, got to understand one another. And, and um, I think COVID, um, COVID really interrupted, I mean, we, we had our deepening group for about a year, but I think um, the online kind of format and the, it, it just kind of didn't, it, wouldn't, it wasn't working at one point. It wasn't what it was previously. And um, I think that kind of, it hit us both, I think, pretty hard um, because we we needed that environment as a place to um, uh, think and express ourselves, and and so this kind of came just as a natural initiative because um, you know you can't be silent and stagnant. <laughs> so it we just, it was just a redirection of our efforts from the the weekly deepening group of our you know our closest friends to. Um, uh, not quite weekly <laughs> uh, podcasts too, yeah. Yeah, maybe one day it'll be weekly. <laughs> it's uh, funny, the uh, your podcast listeners won't be able to tell, but uh, Anthony and I are such good friends that uh, on the Zoom call, it's apparent that we're both essentially wearing the exact same sweater. <laughs> um, Twinsies. That's right, yeah. <laughs> this was not planned. <laughs> It's funny in our deepening group, our weekly deepening. I have a twin brother, Sarah, right? And um, but my twin brother doesn't look anything. Yeah, so he's fraternal, and he doesn't look anything like me. But Michael actually looks quite a bit like me. Yeah. <laughs> so in our in the deepening group, whenever we would have friends or other people introduce ourselves, and I would say, "Guess who's the twin? My twin brother in this room." They would always they would always choose you know Michael because Michael looks more like like my brother than my actual brother. <laughs> anyway yeah so yeah just uh just continuing on this theme of kind of individualism and and you know i think it's one of the i know for me one of the most kind of pernicious i guess lies <laughs> that our society tells us that i have definitely internalized and and struggled to resist is the idea of just this complete independence that you know each of us is supposed to be completely self-sufficient and uh reliant on our own ideas our own thinking and our own initiative and it's been wonderful to realize through the creation of this podcast how untrue that is like not in a million years would a single episode of the podcast have been created if it was me working alone because i don't have the kind of initiative it takes to start something like this and anthony would never have gone out the door because he has no technical skill <laughs> so it's yeah, uh absolutely. that's that's been that's been a really this has been a real kind of confirmation for us of the the multiplicative power, I guess you could say, of working together and that we're not meant to be sort of isolated workers or, or thinkers or, or anything. We're, we're really meant to do things together. I just add maybe one other thing about why specifically do a podcast. I think in the process of the, the deepening group that Anthony mentioned, um, we saw that a number of questions kind of kept coming up in the group and and we learned from the discussions different ways of thinking about these questions that we hadn't had before. And that was a real um, blessing, I think, of that group that it, it allowed us mm -hmm. to, to think more deeply about these questions. And the podcast mm -hmm. is an extension of that. Like on the one hand, in the Baha'i faith, there's no clergy. So no individual or group has the responsibility of studying the Baha'i writings and trying to understand them better or of sharing the Baha'i message to others. That's everybody's responsibility. And this seemed like a, a way that suited 
us, our temperament and and sort of our our abilities uh, as a way to kind of both, yeah, sh- share the message to some extent, but maybe even more so just learn more about it ourselves because in the process of putting an episode together, we really have to study and questions come up and we have to extend our own learning. Um, and then maybe the the other great thing about this format is if you get feedback from people who listen to something that you put out there, um, you know, that they say the best way to learn something is to teach it. And I think part of that is that in trying to teach something, you have to make it clear enough that somebody else can absorb it. And if the feedback ends up being that made no sense, then often what that means is that the teacher didn't actually understand it properly either. So, uh, so yeah, that's that kind of keeps, there's this constant um, interplay between generosity in terms of trying to share ideas that we think are important, but then also humility in realizing they aren't our ideas and we may not even understand them certainly not perfectly and maybe not even as well as some of the people who might listen and, and then reach their own conclusions. I think that's a good point. And it's definitely something that I had never really seen before until I entered Baha'i, which is people being on equal footings with each other because I've been a part of many different faiths throughout my life, but there was always a hierarchy that you would have to go down. So it's like this person is on the top and they're the highest authority and then so on and so forth. You know, and if you come up with questions or maybe you interpret something differently than they do, they say, oh, well, I'm a higher authority, therefore you're wrong in this. And because of that authority, it was sort of like you were shut down and it was the end of the discussion. But in Baha'i, because there's no authority, everyone's on equal footing, it's okay to come to a different conclusion than someone else did. And you can even talk it over. And I feel like you learn so much more from each other that way, rather than to just kind of throw your authority around as a little shutdown button. Yeah, it also it also really calls forward different a different maturity level, right? A different skill set. Because um, you know, the watchword of the Baha'i faith is unity and diversity, right? And so when it comes down to people having drastically different opinions, which on the surface seem irreconcilable, right? So even perhaps at a general level, even if we're all Baha'is, perhaps at a general level, we all agree in the guidance of Abdul Baha, the House of Justice, and et cetera. And, but within the cracks, there's, there's a range of interpretations and there are a range of issues which can serve as obstacles. And so the ability to um, sit with possible contradictions or tensions and uh, patiently enough to um, learn something from those differences calls forward a huge level of maturity that you know is is a challenge for any community to to really um, to really respect that diversity and get from diversity the the promises latent in in it rather than oversimplifying the diversity and or excluding or you know um, so it's I don't know if we always do it perfectly, but certainly the ideal is there that um, we have to develop the skills to be able to engage with diversity in a meaningful way. And, and um, yeah, it, it's, it really calls us uh, something out of us. I have to say, I definitely, agree with that and then because when you're Baha'i you're exposed to so many other teachings out there and in one of the groups I was a part of we would sometimes talk about passages from other faiths out there that weren't Baha'i and one of the ones that kind of challenged me the most was we were talking about the story of Job in the Bible and how Job is tested and I thought well, the way I'm interpreting the story is like right on, I've got this. And I was really overconfident in myself. And then um, another person came to like a totally different conclusion about what the meaning behind the story was. And at first I was like kind of angry 
about it because, you know, you're so sure of yourself and, you know, ego. We don't like to feel like we're wrong about something or feel inferior in any way. But then after a while, I just kind of sat down and listened to what she had to say and I realized how much I learned. But then I also realized that in that moment, I was basically like the type of people I was trying to get away from, you know, the people who just want to use authority and and shut down a conversation. You know, it, um, it, it segues into this issue of progressive revelation. So as you know, progressive revelation is this core teaching in the Baha'i faith. And the idea is that all religions are one, but they are so that God has one message for humanity, reveals that message differently according to the needs and the capacities and the, you know, just the mentality of the people to whom he sends a messenger. And, um, and so what we have in the world today is many different religions that on the surface, maybe they do share, I mean, they share some elements together, but on the surface, if you really look at it, there's major differences between them. And so what the Baha'i faith is saying is that all of these religions are ultimately one, despite the apparent diversities and differences among them. And that is hugely challenging to be able to realize the nature of that oneness. And so, um, like, like in one of our podcast episodes, we discussed this issue that um, oftentimes the way that people seek to uh, establish the unity and the oneness of religion is just at this really, gen- like such a general level that it's kind of meaningless, right? You just say, yeah, they're all one because they're all about love, or they're all one because they all they agree on these general values, right? And that's really, that's what the Baha'i faith is saying, but that's really not all the Baha'i faith is saying. The Baha'i faith is, t- is saying like they're all one in, um, and the differences, the meaningless differences need to be put aside and deprioritized and de-emphasized and the, so that a new interpretation of oneness can be put forward that all humanity can, can uh, that will suit the needs of modern day you know, of the modern human race, and so that we could move forward on this basis. And that is a very challenging interpretation of unity. And in order for humanity, that we, in order for us to be able to see and appreciate that unity, we're going to really need to rise above and really need to be able to develop some skills to put aside, uh, um, to not get caught in, you know, to not make mountains out of moles and be able to have some perspective on what we can put aside, what differences we can put aside and what, uh, and how to move forward um, respecting differences and respecting diversity. Yeah. What do you think, Michael? Yeah, it's certainly a very big uh, topic. And I think this, this distinction between sort of an easy statement that, uh, religions are all trying to do the same thing. And so they're one in that sense. Um, distinguishing that from the Baha'i view that they are what we, I guess you could, um, sort of in philosophical terms, you could say they're ontologically the same. They're the essence of what they are in reality is actually the same. Um, mm-hmm. It's interesting. We There's a number of different images or uh, analogies that are uh, found either in the Baha'i writings or the Baha'is have come up with to try to illustrate this concept. And I think no no one of them perfectly captures the idea of progressive revelation because every analogy is limited. But one that Anthony and I were kind of experimenting with in the podcast is to think of uh, think of the experience of being in a cathedral um, just before dawn. So there's no light in the cathedral. And then as the sun rises, you see light begins to filter in through a stained glass window uh, on a wall. And the light that comes in has the hues and the the colors uh, of that window. That's what's filtering the light. And then as the sun continues to trace its arc across the sky, slowly the light in that window dims and it appears more brightly in the next window. And then you realize there's a line of, you know, a number of, but there's 10 or 12 windows all in a line. 
And as time goes on, each of them gets illuminated in, in turn. And the windows could be very different. They could be showing completely, illustrating completely different stories. And if you focused on the windows, you would say they're different. The stories are different. But the purpose of a window is to convey light. And so in its essence, they are all the same. The light coming in is the same. It's just received an impression from that particular window. Um, so I think that that kind of captures the idea of how the essence of religion can be the same, even though the forms in which it appears are different because humanity has been so different at different times and places and has needed different things in order to, in order to advance. I think that's a good point, and it's definitely a very beautiful metaphor. I've, I've actually never heard one quite like that for progressive revelation. The most common one I've heard is um, Rain Wilson from the, the Office is Baha'i, and he compared it to uh, different computer software systems and how they build on each other, and saying that the faiths sort of build on each other in a way like mm -hmm. that, but they're still connected I've never somehow, heard that which... I, I mean, it's definitely interesting, but I feel like Michael's point kind of guides us towards the meaning behind the word Baha'i because Baha is glory and the I part is for followers. So the Baha'i are the followers of glory. And then one of the main prophets, Baha'u'llah, that means the glory of God. Uh -huh. So he guided his followers to the path of glory. And the light from all the different religions, regardless of those differences, still guides people towards the path of mm -hmm. glory. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's really um, that's nicely put, Sarah. <laughs> yeah, I think oh, I think you. it's uh, on this this point of sort of the different the difference different analogies will each highlight something different about the underlying truth they're trying to express. One advantage of the operating system analogy um, is that an operating system is designed to do something. It the computer has to accomplish a task, which maybe isn't quite, you don't quite see that in the stained, stained glass windows are pretty, but. <laughs> um, and that's another facet of this idea is that religion wasn't given to humanity simply to comfort it or to, um, to provide sort of a, or even just to provide kind of a spiritual experience to humanity. In each age, the religion that was revealed to humanity had a civilizational purpose. It was, intended to advance humanity beyond where it was to to a further point um, yeah so so religion has that purpose in the world not just sort of a, a metaphysical purpose but you know if, if we think about it so there's a lot of resistance i mean if you think about this kind of interpretation of unity right that because what you're asking so if you think about it, I think, if I think about our Western circles, right, um, particularly, you know, um, modern kind of educated, secular kind of people that I know, um, there's a, there's a t there would be a ton of resistance to this type of idea of unity, because what, what you're saying is that, so you have to kind of then, it, it does imply a sort of ranking in a sense of there are certain there are certain movements that are more relevant and you you can't so it's not a it's not a pure um cultural relativism to say that every religion is just good in its own way and that's what that's what we're going to leave it at right so but i think especially when we talk about religion insofar as people would accept religion or be open to it, that's the only form in which they would be open to it, right? Because they just say, oh yeah, it's good, but you know, everybody's entitled to their own good. And it's not to say that we Baha'is endorse, you know, coercion in matters of religion, absolutely not, right? It's categorically condemned. But um, nonetheless, there is some sense that we need a movement which is adequate for the complexity of of the modern world it's good that meets the needs of modern day people and so this this idea of progressive revelation i mean it for me it just it i think it's one of the ideas that really touched me early on that just made sense of all of these uh innumerable insurmountable differences between the religions because you know um 
it, it doesn't reject any of the religions, right? It, it exalts each one of them to the same level, but doing a different thing at different times, right? And so, um, but I think to my surprise, as I started, you know, um, trying to talk to people about the faith and trying to vindicate some of the ideas and the principles of the faith, people, even those people who are interested in religion, on different grounds, have such barriers to this kind of idea uh, that, or this form of unity, um, whether because they're exclusivist and that I accept only my religion, or whether they're overly inclusivist and that they refuse to acknowledge any difference whatsoever between any of the religions. And, and so for me, I think I've been thinking about this. Um, so we have these grand hopes and ideals as Baha'is. And I was, if I can share a quote, because the question is like, how do you achieve this unity, right? And it's, it kind of harkens back to what I was just saying about like, we have to be able to develop the spiritual maturity needed to help people uh, reconcile differences. And and that the, the, the way to do that is through our, our deeds. We have to transform ourselves spiritually so that our deeds are... Uh, a strong symbol to the people of the world and a strong, so that our, our deeds are themselves vindicating the truth of the, of the message that we receive. So for example, if we're able to authentically be with, with people of other religions and in, in genuine love, right? That's the only thing that can convince people of the, of the, of the message that we hold dear, right? So there's this quote, for example, um, So how do we achieve unity? Not by the force of numbers, not by the mere exposition of a set of new and noble principles, not by an organized campaign of teaching, no matter how worldwide and elaborate in its character, not even by the staunchness of our faith or the exaltation of our enthusiasm can we ultimately hope to vindicate in the eyes of a critical and skeptical age this supreme claim of the Abha revelation. One thing, and only one thing, will unfailingly and alone secure the undoubted triumph of this sacred cause, namely, the extent to which our own inner life and private character mirror forth in their manifold aspects the splendor of those eternal principles proclaimed by Baha'u'llah. So it's really calling us to such a level of maturity that in our own relationships within ourselves with other people uh, that we're able to vindicate the the noble principles that the spiritual principles that Baha'u'llah calls us to um, that's how we can achieve the oneness that's how these beautiful ideas and you know um, of oneness can be kind of realized and without that it's just not going to happen no matter how right one person may be or how how articulate or how you know yeah I have to agree, and that's kind of part of why I started my podcast, because it's like the uh, Jimmy Cliff song, we all are one, and no matter where we're from, we're still human beings. The only difference that I can really see is in the consciousness and in the shade of the skin, but it doesn't matter. You know, so like, even though we still have these differences, we're still human beings, and it's still our world. And at the end of the day, we have more in common than we do different. So we shouldn't let differences divide us. And I know that maybe sounds a little bit cheesy and a little bit oversimplified sometimes, but I think it's true. So uh, Baha'i is one of the fastest growing faiths in the world according to recent statistics. So what do you two see in the future for Baha'is given these facts? That's an interesting question. Um, yeah, hard question. Yeah, the, I guess just thinking a, a bit about in terms of how the Baha'i community is learning to operate today, 
So there's a couple of kind of principles guide the development of the Baha'i faith um, and have kind of since its inception. Um, one of the very, very, very first, um, I guess you could call it a law that, that Baha'u'llah revealed for Baha'is was that any kind of coercion in matters of religion was categorically forbidden. And so this obviously, you know, means violence in the name of religion is, is completely ruled out. But even uh, more subtle kinds of coercion uh, attempts to um, you know, threaten or bribe people or, or, or to deny them just their own freedom of conscience. Uh, so the method of teaching the faith that um, Baha'u'llah and his son Abdu'l-Baha instructed the Baha'is to use was to present the teachings of Baha'u'llah in a spirit of humility. Uh, and somebody who once watched Abdu'l-Baha doing this, talking about the Baha'i faith, said it was like watching someone presenting a gift to a king. So you honor the message that you're bringing, but you also honor the soul of the person who you're, you're speaking to. And they, their response is, they're entirely free to have whatever response they want. And if they say, you know, I'm not interested, then you continue to be their friend and to show them, show them love. And if they say they are interested, then, then you can continue to share. <clears throat> and I think that kind of following from that spirit, increasingly what the Baha'is are trying to learn to do under the guidance of the Universal House of Justice is to develop a culture where We, we learn what it means to work with everybody in a community using whatever points of unity we can find. Uh, and that's easier said than done, it's hugely challenging. But the, the purpose of religion is to improve human existence in this life and then to also sort of secure our, our spiritual advancement um, in this life and then and then in, in, in the life beyond. But if the goal is to improve civilization and society, then we have to learn to work with everyone. Um, so I think that increasingly what the Baha'i community is trying to learn to do is, is to see what that looks like in practice. So what does it mean to take the teachings of Baha'u'llah and to operationalize them in new ways of being in a community together. And we don't, act, we don't know all the answers to that. It's something that has to be learned through practice. Um, it's as though we've been given a, a, you know, a guiding set of principles, but, but we are the ones who have, to, who have to act them out and learn through experimentation and trial and error how they work in different contexts. And, and, uh, and there'll be a lot of mistakes along the way, but, um, but in a way that's, that's fine, because the, the goal is to learn how to build community, not to sort of do something perfectly from the start. I should clarify, Sarah, like, um, so for Baha'is, uh, in terms of what the future of humanity looks like, and the role that the Baha'i faith plays in redeeming or doing whatever spiritual work it needs to do, there's, there's a distinction in terms of, Baha'is make a distinction in terms of the major plan of God and the minor plan of God. So what that means is the major plan of God operates in the world at large. The idea here is that God is in charge of the direction of, of, of the world, right? And whatever happens is part of a mysterious plan of that we don't really understand, that nobody really understands. So the major plan is what's referred to as just... Um, it's just the, the will of God as it operates in the larger world, right? And Baha'is have no control over that per se, and we have no privileged access necessarily to that. But the, the minor plan of God is the idea that we have uh, a blueprint, we have a revelation, we have a vision, we have guidance, we have a community. And so it's through the guidance of Baha'u'llah, following the guidance of Baha'u'llah, trying to implement and operationalize the, the, the guidance of Baha'u'llah, creating communities that relate to the wider world and try to, like, so it's through our efforts, that's, that's what's referred to as the minor plan of God. And so, um, you know, I think if, uh, so to Michael's point, I think Michael, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Michael, you're, what you're talking about is really within the context of this minor plan of God, that we have 
a particular vision, a particular um, kind of goal, set of goals. We have a set of guidance that it's our responsibility to operationalize in the world. And that's where Baha'is, we focus our effort kind of. And, but that's always within the context that God is in charge, that it may not pan out the way, exactly the way we expect. We have certain promises about, you know, like about ultimately what it's going to look like at a general level. And that the future of the ultimate future of humanity is very bright. Um, but I think that's, that's always conditional, right? Um, like we know that, uh, or my understanding, please, Michael, correct me if I'm wrong, right? My understanding is that I always, <laughs> I always trust Michael's judgment way more than I trust mine. <laughs> um, so my understanding is that like, so if, as Baha'is, if we look back to previous revelations, previous dispensations, like we know that um, it didn't always play out in exactly the way that it could have played out. There were certain choices that certain um, communities or peoples made that limited the confirmations and the grace uh, that was inherent in their revelation. So I don't know if this, make, this is making sense what I'm saying, Sarah. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? No, I think I understand what you're getting at. What I'm getting at is just that, you know, um, the realization of the promises of the Baha'i faith is entirely conditional. It depends on, so just in terms of even the minor plan, it depends on how we take up the message of Baha'u'llah, the sincerity with which we execute it. The, um, and it relies, it relies on us to operationalize the will of God in this world. And so um, the promises in the Baha'i faith are very beautiful and very motivating. And, um, but whether it's gonna play out really depends on us. And yeah, so I, I think that's how I would approach that issue. So how do you use prayer in your lives as Baha'i? You wanna go ahead, Michael? Sure, sure. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I guess my, my, my intentional answer is, is on an individual basis, uh, not enough. Like I don't, I don't use prayer enough. Um, you know, I think there's a way of talking about religion, but certainly the Baha'i faith, and maybe Anthony and I both tend towards this as a way of talking about it that emphasizes the logical and the philosophical. And that is important, but I think that it's a habit of mind that we have. And again, this could be a particular pathology of our society and this, this time and place in, in history, but uh, we have pretty fragmented ways of thinking about our, ourselves where there's our rational mind, and then there's our intuitive spiritual side. And my sense from the, the Baha'i framework for thinking about a human being is these are not distinct things. Um, it can sometimes be useful to think of them as distinct things, but they are fundamentally one. But we treat, we treat them as separate. And that means that you know, some of us are stronger in one respect, some of us are stronger in another. Um, I love uh, prayer when I am praying, but I wouldn't say that I'm somebody who, who has yet developed that habit of turning instinctively to prayer. Um, and there's a, so one, one thing that I really value in the Baha'i uh, faith, there's, it's, Baha'is will often say there are no sort of rituals or there's very little in the way of formal religious obligation in, in the Baha'i faith. And I think there's a way in which that's true when you sort of line up what you do in a day or in a year as a Baha'i, how ritualistic is it? How, how formulized uh, is it as compared to other religions? There's a way I think in which that statement's true, but there are still some um, things that, that sort of, if you will, boxes that you have to check as a Baha'i. And one of them is something called obligatory prayer, where every day a Baha'i chooses one of three different prayers to say at a particular time of day and, and Two of the three are even accompanied by particular actions, um, which would be 
uh, somewhat familiar to, to anyone uh, who's, who's familiar with uh, Muslim obligatory prayer. And that I think is a, is, a, is a huge bounty for somebody like me who doesn't have that habit yet. I say yet, because I think you know, these things are flexible and it's oh, a habit yeah. I hope to develop more. Um, but regardless of whether I feel drawn to prayer, this is something that I, I say every day. And so it, it, in that way, ensures that the connection stays open. If we think about prayer as a conversation with God, it ensures that at least once a day, I stop to check in. <laughs> um, so that's uh, that's real bounty. And then maybe very quickly, one other dimension of, of prayer that has been maybe the heart, one challenge of COVID, there's a, the collective dimension of prayer is I think very strong in the Baha'i faith. Now, interestingly, there's nothing, there's, there's, there's no what's called congregational prayer where one person leads a prayer and others simply follow. The exception being um, there is a prayer for the dead that takes on that form, but in day-to-day -day life, there's no, no prayer of that form. But praying together is extremely important. And it's a, a, an amazing facet of Baha'i culture worldwide that in every place you go to where there are Baha'is, they turn collective prayer into their own thing because it, it becomes infused with local musical forms, artistic expressions. And so it can look wildly different depending on whether you're praying with a group of Baha'is and their friends in you know, Senegal versus in Iran versus in Peru. Um, or if you happen to have the bounty being in a group where people from all those places are gathering together and then you really see how diversity can become a strength. So that's something that I've really missed during COVID because you can kind of do it on Zoom, but <laughs> it's not quite the same. Um, so learning to make those kinds of gatherings for collective prayer a part of the rhythm of community life, I think is very important for Baha'is. Because again, this is a place where there's no distinction. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what you believe or where you come from. The space is held open for everyone to take that time, which is so rare and precious in the pace of life that we lead today. Take that time just to commune with commune with God, or if you prefer to think of it this way, commune with your own spirit, which is another way in which sort of our devotional life is described in, in the Baha'i writings that in a way it's getting to know our true self. Um, so yeah, for me, these are still aspirations that I want to get better at doing, but it's, that's kind of, that's the, the vision I think that guides my understanding of prayer. For me, Sarah, um, you know, I, I think I, I really, I'm kind of like Michael too, um, it's always a bit of a, I don't naturally, or I won't say that, but there have been, I think uh, there have been times where I don't naturally understand, feel, or feel like this huge question mark of how do I pray? I mean, authentically, right? Um, recently, I have, in, I would say in the past six months, I've been having a tough go of life. Life has been throwing me some curveballs that have really made me go inward. And I've been really surprised to find sometimes, you know, it's kind of this interesting thing that um, when you, I, I tend to really over-intellectualize it and wondering, am I praying? Do I pray well? Do I pray enough? But then sometimes I find spontaneously my heart reaches out right and i won't even consciously recognize that it's doing that but then i after the fact i think oh well that's 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 a prayer and so i've i've been feeling very prayerful recently to my surprise and so thinking about this like what do i use prayer for so for me uh i use prayer for awareness and reframing like re reframing the terms of life and so as a daily reminder of the big big picture beliefs that help me, that comfort me and help me cope with my life. Um, I use prayer as a way of achieving contentment and acceptance with the terms of things that I can't control. So reconciling myself to things that are difficult in life and is praying for the divine strength that there must be a purpose here that I don't see. Please help me see it. Please help me accept it. Um, I use prayer as a way of overcoming selfishness and egotism, which run very strongly within me. I'm always surprised to see. <laughs> it's just like I sometimes 
you know, um, I don't know. I just, there's just a myriad ways in which my ego and selfishness take control of me that I don't always, I'm not always aware of, but sometimes I have the grace of becoming aware of it that, oh, I'm just behaving like a petulant child, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so I use prayer as a way of overcoming um, my selfishness and saying, hold on, you're thinking of this thing in this way from this perspective, that's self-serving. God, please help me to overcome this. Help me to give up my selfishness, give up my ego, uh, see the wider picture of things. It's not all about me. Um, I use prayer also because despite my selfishness and whatever and all the bad characteristics, I also have a lot of spiritual emotions and a lot of love for people sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes I'm, I have this movement of, of kind of universal love in me. And I really want the best for other people, other places, you know, um, and I use prayer to express that sense of love. And so like if people are suffering, for example, in some part of the world, I just, my heart will really go out to them. But I don't necessarily, it's not to say that I can't do anything necessarily. Of course, it has to be channeled in actions. But I use prayer to just, um, to, to call up divine blessings for those people, just an act of intention and movement of love toward, in my own heart, within myself towards people. I use prayer for that too. I think for me, um, you know, when you read the prayers of, the Bab, Baha'u'llah, and Abdu'l-Baha. Um, there, you know, there's there's different, like it's easy to read a prayer just on the surface and to just say the words, and that's fine. But when you read, for example, uh, like I'll, I'll share a prayer. If you read, I'll share this prayer that I say, I say quite a bit. Um, so, O Lord, unto thee I repair for refuge. The prayer starts that way. I repair for refuge to you, God right? So it's easy to just say that and pass by it, but to really dwell on that and to kind of, to go deep within that meaning, um, that in this moment, I am repairing, I need God as my refuge, right? I am asking you for refuge, God, please be my refuge. I need refuge, right? Towards all thy signs, I set my heart, whether traveling or at home and in my occupation and my work, I place my whole trust in thee. So like, so that concept, I am placing all of my trust in you, God. So for me, that's a reframing of things because I place my trust in all kinds of things which are disappointing to me all the time, right? And so I often have to think, okay, I don't want to let go of this particular thing that I'm putting my trust in. I'm particularly attached to this thing. But the prayer is calling me to say, I'm putting all of my trust in you, God. And it's only in that that I'm going to find refuge away from whatever thing that's, you know, um, whatever thing that I'm struggling with, right? Um, so I don't know whether it be, I think for me, for example, um, you know, you always think things are going to go a certain way in life and, that, and, and things don't go the way that you think that they are. I don't know how old you are, Sarah. You're you're an undergrad, right? Life is what happens when you're busy making other plans, John Lennon. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah, I don't. I I don't mean to comment on your age, though. But I mean, like, I remember when I was an undergrad, I had so many hopes and assumptions that the world was going to give me something, and then I was just like, here I am. When I was 25, it wasn't coming. When I was 30, it didn't happen. When I was 35, it didn't happen. I'm just like, what the hell, life? Like, why aren't you giving me what I thought I was entitled to or whatever? And yeah, so I think this is just an example. Like, okay, I can fester in resentment. I can, um, you know, fester in ego. I can, or I can take a step back and put my own perspective and my own will aside. And so I think that's the act of prayer, kind of. Like you, you put yourself aside and you dwell on a higher vision as revealed to you through these prayers. And you let that vision trickle down and influence you, your heart, and influence your the different conditions of your heart. And I don't know, that's kind of my interpretation. I'm sure that's not the whole thing of what it is and people use it in very different ways, but that's how I'm, I'm using it now. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah, I might just sort of piggyback on, on what Anthony shared. I think there's a way of understanding prayer from a an evolutionarily evolutionary psychology point of view, where you know, early the early human finds him or herself in a world utterly beyond their control, where disease, wild animals, and you know, storms can you know basically kill them at any moment. The one weapon that the human has to try to sort of fend off the chaos is their capacity to imagine. And so prayer emerges as this attempt to, through ritual form, control the gods, basically, to constrain them. And if you do the ritual exactly right, then somehow you will leash all these chaotic forces and and you won't be so afraid anymore. And I think, you know, I don't think that's a illegitimate story. I'm sure, you know, there's a way of looking at human reality as emerging from natural processes. There's a way of looking at it as a divine reality guided by a divine will. And I think that as we become a bit more sophisticated and less fragmented in our way of seeing the world, we'll see that in a way these are have been the same thing. But what's very interesting about Prayer, so certainly the prayers in the Baha'i faith were given so many prayers, as Anthony mentioned, the text of the prayers was written out for us or recited for us by the central figures of the Baha'i faith. And I know from some traditions that can seem quite strange, like why aren't you praying from the heart or in your own words? And there is absolutely a place for that as well. But what's interesting is that in all these prayers, when you pay attention to the words enough, you realize that the prayer is not intended to be you asking god for what you want it's not you know the please give me a car please give me a raise please it you know you can you can ask for those things you're free anything you want you should ask god for actually because that in a way reaffirms the proper relationship between the child and the parent or the the created entity and, and the creator but at the same time, the wording of the prayers encourages us to let go of what we want and to detach. And there's a lot of ways to understand that. One would be kind of a Buddhist perspective, where it's it's the fact of desiring that makes us so unhappy. So freedom comes in renouncing what we desire. Um, and then there's also the perspective, sort of from a from a from a Baha'i perspective, that if we really understood our true self, we'd see that what we really want, what we really need is what the soul really wants and needs, and that is identical with what God wants for us. There can't be a difference because our soul is made in the image of God. And all the ideas we have about what we really want are just those layers of all the non-essential parts of ourselves that interfere with those impulses and get us confused about what we, what we want. So maybe in that spirit, I could just share, this is a, 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 a somewhat special prayer it's, it's called the Tablet of Visitation for Abdu'l-Baha. It's a prayer that Abdu'l-Baha wrote with the intent that um, people visiting his resting place or thinking particularly of him or, or commemorating um, events associated with his life should say this prayer. And maybe just to say a couple words about who Abdu'l-Baha was, in addition to being Baha'u'llah's son, um, one aspect of his station for Baha'is is that he's considered to be the perfect example of a Baha'i life. And so the, wor the words in this prayer, in a sense, I think are intended, as I understand it, to guide the person saying the prayer to be more like Abdu'l-Baha, whose name meant servant of Baha, so servant of glory, and who explicitly defined his own self as being a servant of God. So ne not prior never prioritizing his own will, always prioritizing the will of God. So this is just a one passage from that prayer. O Lord, my God, give me thy grace to serve thy loved ones. Strengthen me in my servitude to thee. Illumine my brow with the light of adoration in thy court of holiness and of prayer to thy kingdom of grandeur. Help me to be selfless at the heavenly entrance of thy gate and aid me to be detached from all things within thy holy precincts. Lord, give me to drink from the chalice of selflessness. With its robe, clothe me, and in its ocean, immerse me. Make me as dust in the pathway of thy loved ones. 
and grant that I may offer up my soul for the earth ennobled by the footsteps of thy chosen ones in thy path, O Lord of glory in the highest. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. I feel like for me with prayer, I have a hard time asking for something because I don't like the idea of prayer being transactionary. Mm. Like if I mm. pray, then that means you give me what I want in return, like a business deal. So a lot of times when I pray, it's more like having a conversation with a friend and I usually pray once a day before I go to bed, but I'm just talking about my day. And if I do ask for anything, it's, you know, always the same thing, like just to make sure that the people I care about are safe and healthy and that's it. I feel like there's not really anything more I can ask for than mm. that. But I think what influenced me the most was when I was about 13 or 14, there was a sermon from a Baptist minister, and he said you should talk to God every day, no matter how you're feeling, if you're happy, if you're sad, if you're angry, and then he went on to say, sometimes I yell at God, and if you can't be yourself with the Father, then I'm going to stop <laughs> preaching the sermon, and y'all can get out of my church, like, again, mm -hmm. that's quite the turnaround but i get it though and oh, yeah, it is yeah. true because if you can't be yourself with god then what's the point of talking to god mm -hmm. yeah there's this you know like like i was saying um ask you know it's true so sometimes if you only see prayer as this transactional thing oh god give me this that's that is a very low form of prayer from a baha'i perspective at least that's my understanding um but it's it's allowed and if it's a touch point right even that is a good starting point i think uh that what the what the baha'i prayers are calling us to is um you know Is, it, is an act of dwelling on the intentions that God has for us. And it's, so it's through the words revealed by the manifestation of God that we come to dwell on um, what God expects of us and we come to mirror God in, in our intentions and our... So I think, I, I don't, yeah, I mean... So I sometimes, so sometimes when I read prayers from the Baha'i writings, I, I'm not really able to get into the depths of them. I just, I, I'm only really able at that moment to pass through the surface. And so I just read the words and you kind of, um, it doesn't go any deeper with me particularly. And sometimes what I need to do is just talk, right? I use my own, you know, kind of, so there's, there is, um, so explicitly the Baha'i teachings offer a place for that. You are, we are allowed to talk to God through our own, whether we want to ask for something, whether we just want to say how we're feeling, whether we want to ask for whatever it is, it's totally fine, right? Um, but I think to taking that time to go and dwell on the, on, the, on the prayers that are revealed to us and allow ourselves to be influenced by those and to take on the... Um, the attitudes, the feelings, the thoughts, the perspectives that are kind of enshrined in them, that, uh, yeah, it's a, yeah, that's a, that's said to be a more powerful form of prayer. I, that's my understanding. But yeah, just and to, to kind of reinforce this double aspect of sincerity and honesty, and at the same time, a willingness to explore these attitudes that are embodied in the prayers. There's a passage in the high writings where it says, ask whatsoever thou willest from him alone. So from just from God. But I think for me as an invitation to be very honest and to say, look, what I want right now is uh, more money. <laughs> what I want right now is, um, you know, and, and I think it can start with, I don't know, maybe this is just me talking. <laughs> it, it could start with pure honesty. Like, Maybe you're having a lot of problem with the problems with a certain person. You're like, I don't 
like this person right now. I'm having issues. Maybe you start the prayer by saying, I feel like I just want them to go away. <laughs> if you word it more strongly. But then I think once you've said your say, if, if prayer is a conversation, every conversation has to have a time of listening. And once we've said what, we, what is genuinely in our heart, then if we can listen and say, okay, from what I know of, you know, from my understanding of what God wants of us, how might I approach this problem I'm having or, or what might I ask for? And then having sort of left the problem or the issue or the thing that we want with God, then I think there's also a place for detachment where we're confident that God hears our prayers. We're confident that God answers our prayers, but we also know that the answer is entirely up to God and can take on a form that we don't anticipate. And that sometimes the answer is no, and that that's fine. Just as, you know, when my three-year-old son asks for something, sometimes the answer is no. And as a parent, I sometimes <laughs> wish he had the maturity to just be like, okay, the answer was no. So if I want that of him, then as an adult, I should try to accept that sometimes the answer is no in my prayers. <laughs> it's funny how many parallels I can draw between my behavior and mm. my two-year-olds. <laughs> it's just like, I just see my own. I'm like, I'm a grown-up man. And this is it's like, why am I behaving like a two-year-old? <laughs> That's pretty fair. I feel like there are moments when we just kind of want to be done with the day and just get our blankies and go for an out. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> so was there anything else you two wanted to discuss on the show today? Just a huge feeling of gratitude to you, Sarah, for um, facilitating the conversation and uh, yeah, being such a great listener. Thank you so much for, you know, you had amazing questions and um, yeah, so just super grateful for that. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, this this podcast is such a wonderful uh, initiative um, to hear from diverse perspectives and and get at questions that I don't think I don't. Speaking for myself, I want more spaces in my life to be able to talk about important questions. Absolutely, yeah, big time. And life is a way of kind of crowding them out sometimes. So the fact that you've sort of protected this space to to do exactly that is really. Uh, really a gift to us I think well that's really sweet I really appreciate that and thank you for being on the show it was really fun having y'all both on and just getting to talk to you both and hear your perspectives I had a really good time so thank you thank you Sarah yeah thank you great. you have a good day You can listen to A High Conversation on iTunes or wherever you stream your podcasts. I also found A High Perspective helpful when researching for this episode.